You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Dr. Katarina Lederle. Uh, she's a founder and director of sleep services at a place called Somnia, S-O-M-N-I-A, in the UK. Uh, she's a sleep expert and published author, 10 plus years of research experience. And she has a PhD in human sleep and circadian physiology, a master's in biological sciences. So, Katarina, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, tell me uh, what what drew you to the world of sleep. So what drew me to the world of sleep? Um, I think lots of different things. So I remember when I was really little, um, first time then sort of thinking about sleep. So I grew up on on a farm, you know, really in the middle of of nowhere, so to speak. No neighbours, apart from an army base a few miles down. Um, And they fly a helicopter. And now, you know, any pilot has to has to train um, and they have to train in the daytime, but also at nighttime. And for me, hearing the sound of helicopters in the middle of the night has always been like a lullaby. So if I was to wake up, you know, and hear the helicopter going above me, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm safe. I'm fine. Roll over and fall asleep again. And, you know, and be happy hunky dory the next morning. My dad, however, for him, it's an entirely different story. And he is someone who is naturally very chirpy, very funny person. You know, great dad. Um, but after a night of helicopter flying, his sleep would have been, you know, shot into pieces, so to speak. And he'd be so grumpy the next day. And in fact, he actually was grumpy already in the evening because he kind of knew what was coming. And and back then, like I said, as a little girl, I was wondering, you know, how, how different the experience for both of us is around sleep. Like for me, it's it's great. And for him, it isn't. And how it affects our mood. Um and then, though, it, it took me quite some time to actually get into the sleep field. I first did a little bit around chronobiology um, with um, wild horses, so sort of the timing system there. Um, and relatively later on, after my master's, sort of decided, okay, I'm going to change slightly, you know, and, yeah, look into sleep in, in humans um, and have been in the field ever since. Interesting. So what um, what's to know about circadian rhythms besides, you know, the basics that, you know, everyone's on this? 24-hour cycle because of the earth and uh you know we have different chronotypes night owls and larks i mean yeah yeah i've spoken to several sleep people about this but you know going deeper what what's the important stuff that you've learned about it so the important thing here is that um it is not exactly 24 hours for most people but again not all it's a little bit longer um and it's somewhat different for for each one of us, and it can also change as we as we grow up. Um, and you you mentioned um, chronotypes, so the, the concept sort of of 
whether you, you go to bed early, you're in lark, or go to bed late if you're an owl, and then, you know, everyone is, is in between. It follows a nice, nice um, bell-shaped curve. Um, the, the importance to actually find out for each one of us what is my chronotype and related to that, what are my sleep times? What is my personal sleep window? Um, you know, and then sleeping and being awake according to that window set by, by the body clock. But the, the importance, like I said, is to, to figure it out for yourself um, what that is and not to sort of just go with what the media is, is telling you. Yeah, you know, society tells you it rewards you for being an early bird and uh, punishes you for being a night owl. It tries to make you feel like you're a bad person and you're going to fall behind. And what's wrong exactly. with you? And you're lazy and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that's just convention that we start working at eight or nine o'clock, and it's the same for school. Sometimes it's even it's even before eight, um, and that suits you know some people, but not everyone. And we're sort of ignoring something here, and actually, in a way, you know sacrificing their health because someone who is an owl who wants to go to bed late and they still need you know, eight hours, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less, they constantly have to cut their sleep short during the working week in order to make it into the office by eight, nine o'clock. Um, you know, and it would be much better if we had flexi times and, and created working times around someone's body clock. Um, certainly, you know, owls, they would perform much better and actually be more productive if they sort of could come into work um, as and when they are ready. And then obviously, you know, they could stay longer and still do an eight hour day. That's that's not the question. Has there been science to physiologically look at the differences between, you know, larks and owls? Are there any underlying physical differences? Um, yeah, so there are there are a number of studies, um, for example, um, testing larks and owls at the same clock time, um, for example, starting at eight o'clock a.m. and then doing it in regular intervals on different performance measurements physically, as well as uh, cognitively. And you can see that the lark, you know, is is bright and chirpy and, and very productive in the morning. Um, but the owl isn't. They become more productive, properly wake up. Um, and can properly cognitively function in that sense later um, in, in the afternoon. So there are differences between them. And we also have differences in, in genes, although that's sort of a very young research field when it comes to chronobiology and chronotyping. But there seems to be differences in the genetic markup as well. Well, what are the, um, what are the cues that cause people's clocks to be one way or another? You know, I know light is a major cue, but, you know, if light is a cue, it seems to cue differently in larks versus owls. And, you know, you have uh, melatonin cycling, you have cortisol cycling. I mean, again, you, you, are you saying it's just too new that no one has really done the, uh, the blood work or looked at the underlying physiology to see what's happening? Um, so it, it is there, there is a lot, um, sort of lot of research groups currently looking at this. What exactly is is difference, and how are these difference in genes affecting the molecular work molecular workings of of the clock? But that's too early. But um, just talking about coming back to the light, what you mentioned, light is the major sight giver or time giver for our body clock. And that's the same as in, in an arc as well as in an owl. But how sensitive we are at different times of days, that seems to be somewhat different. Um, there's a difference between between all of us, but then, you know, broadly speaking, between, between these two groups. But again, we shouldn't forget there's also that big group in the middle, the, the hummingbirds, or I don't really have a name, um, 
right, one shouldn't forget, um, larks and owls are really just actually the extreme ends. And they are, could be, or they could be something like 11 or 12 hours apart. So coming back to the light, the light is what resets our clock on a daily basis. And especially morning light um, is, is very important and very powerful there. If we don't have the light and you could think of a blind person who's completely blind so there's no light perception whatsoever in these people their biological clock runs according to its own rhythm and as I said earlier on in most people it's a little bit longer than 24 hours which creates a real problem for these people because for some time of the year they're completely out of sync with the rest of of the society then they will overlap and then they drift drift off again, so to speak, meaning that for some time of the year, they they are ready to go to work when we go to work, normally sighted people. Um, but then it may be that actually during our nighttime, they are ready to go to work. And you can qu quickly see that creates problems for them, you know, to fully participate in our society. So blind people tend to uh, drift into a different sleep-wake cycle over time? Um, and, and non-entrained, they will follow what their clock is saying. And it's because it is a little bit longer than 24 hours, which is the natural light-dark cycle and the one we are entrained to, um, they will drift and lag behind us. And at some point, it just happens sort of that they will overlap again with, with our night-dark cycle, but not for long. And then they will drift drift behind the lag behind again because they don't get that synchronizing light signal that we all need um, each day. I mean, they still have eyes. The eyes are open to the sun. So it's, it's, uh, does that mean the, the act of seeing, that's the processing of the light? Or is there something uh, else in the eye mm -hmm. that's actually acting as a receptor for the light? Yeah, very good question. Maybe their optic nerve doesn't work. Weird. So very, very good question. And I didn't, didn't explain that before. So the, the clock gets the light information via the eyes, but they're special photoreceptors. So the rods and cones, they do input to some degrees, um, but there's a new um, photopigment, new, um, relatively new photopigment called melanopsin. Um, and that detects light levels in that sense. It's, you can't see but it's with, with it, so there's no visual that comes from it. It simply detects light levels. Um, and that's really what feeds back um, to the clock telling it it is it is light outside which means it's day and then the clock will you know broadcast to the rest of the body it is daytime and when sort of the light goes and darkness comes the clock will then know okay it's nighttime now and it will it will broadcast nighttime to the rest of the body and you mentioned melatonin early, early on that is actually the the way or the signal the body you sorry the clock uses to tell the rest of the body it is nighttime now you know, do everything that's appropriate for nighttime. So how sensitive uh, do you believe our perception of light is? You know, if, uh, if I'm in a room that's pretty dark, mm. but not pitch black, meaning let's say I sleep during the day, you know, it seems like uh, even though the room is dark, it's not pitch dark, my body can still tell that it's during the day. My sleep is very different than, you know, truly at night where it's pitch dark. Yeah. So again, um, we sort of we can't look at sort of one day or one night in isolation isolation you know, there's preceding days and nights we are designed to sleep at night and to be awake during the day yeah that's how we we have evolved also our visual system because we can't see very well at night so we could easily fall prey 
um, you know, to to the big predators. So it's about getting into safety, sort of going, you know, into the cave or up the trees, wherever we sort of first evolved and and lived. Um, but there is a difference in also in light sensitivity across the 24-hour clock, and we're most light sensitive at night. And there, little light is enough to affect us um, physiologically um, and can lead to a suppression of, of melatonin. Okay. So what's the, um, you know, I've been asking you, grilling you about chronotypes here. What, what's the main area of your work? What kind of, uh, you know, do you do a lot of clinical work? Or, you know, what do you see and, and who do you help? So um, my main area is to raise awareness for sleep and re related to that also for the body clock and, you know, because it governs so many, many other things as well. But predominantly it's raising awareness for sleep, helping the public understand what sleep is and why it is so important. Um, but it doesn't stop there. It's then also helping people to improve their sleep. And again, that could be, you know, the wider public, but um, I also work specifically with people who suffer from insomnia um, using a non-drug approach, um, helping them to get their sleep back on track. And ultimately, I think really what, what drives me here is um, helping people live their lives to their full because we all need sleep yeah, to, to recharge and recover and to be the best we can be the next day. So it's really about improving quality of life um for for people okay so in uh you work with insomnia a lot what kind is it onset insomnia is it middle of the night later in the morning you know what what kind of different kinds do you work with uh, any any and you know insomnia as you rightly said point out it's it's an umbrella term with with different symptoms and they can change within the same individual from night to night or you know across months um but it uh yeah for me you know it it doesn't matter um what what it is um it's it's about educating the person of of what's going on and how behaviors um but also responses to not sleeping can fuel the the insomnia the wakefulness or slowly sort of help for sleep to come back in well, what's an example of a, a common insomnia and then one that's more tricky or, or more rare? What are some examples? Yeah, so um, probably more, most common is, is the onset um, insomnia where people um, go to bed and, you know, a lot of my clients will say, oh, you know, I'm sitting on the sofa and I'm almost nodding off, you know, ready for sleep. And then, you know, go upstairs, brush my teeth, get into bed, head heels to pillow and bang, the alarm bells go off, you know, and suddenly the mind is racing again and the heart's beating super fast and the it might tense up, you know, and then sleep is sort of just, you know, gone, gone. Um, that's, that's very common. Also common is to, to wake up in the middle of the night, sort of two, three or four o'clock, that seems to be sort of the time. And then, um, again, it's similar that that mind is just so busy and going round and round in circles and sometimes about big problems, but sometimes just about little things, you know, what should I wear tomorrow type of thing. But in the middle of the night, it's like the biggest question. Um, so they, they are very common. Um, less common is the insomnia that's due to unrefreshing sleep where the person doesn't really report a sleep problem so they're not aware of having difficulties to get to sleep or waking up they just don't feel refreshed the next day 
that's that's the rarer one, I would say. So what uh, what kind of therapies do you do for people that have onset insomnia? Is it like the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or are there other tricks? <laughs> other tricks. Um, so but what I'm using is called um, acceptance commitment therapy or ACT, um, which was developed in the 1980s um, in the US, actually, um, around, I think, in the University of Nevada. Um, and that is sort of coming from CBT, it's a behavioral change therapy, um, but it is very different in, in its approach and, and how it works and in the way the name gives it away, it's acceptance commitment therapy. So there's an element of acceptance in there and also an element of, of mindfulness, which takes up a large part of what, what I teach my clients. Um, this sort of acknowledging of what's going on and then mindfully responding to the situation rather than sort of that automatic reaction that gets us into a struggle and the fight with being awake and actually increases anxiety levels, levels of anger and frustration. And, you know, when we are angry or anxious or frustrated, you know, we're not calm and relaxed, which is sort of the state much more conducive to sleep. Um, and this is something I help my clients sort of um, get back into by developing a more mindful way of living. And then there are also, of course, you know, sort of lifestyle behaviors um, that we look at, like caffeine intake and alcohol intake. And, I, and I'm not saying one can't drink any coffee or can't drink any, any alcohol. You know, I enjoy a glass of wine every now and then and a cup of coffee sometimes. But it's just sort of when and how much and using it strategically rather than just consuming it sort of automatically. What are, what's some uh, advice for the first moments when someone lays down? Is that when the, there are things they can work on to help them sleep, or a lot of it's way before? You know, this, the uh, again, the caffeine and the alcohol for the day, the mental preparation, the wind down. Where do you mm-hmm. find that uh, people find the most value? So, um, what I teach my clients is that preparing for sleep starts the moment you wake up in the morning. Yeah, that's that's when it starts because. Um, Day follows night, night follows day, day, uh, wake follows sleep, sleep follows um, wake. It's all connected. Yeah. Um, so it's the moment we, we wake up. Um, and so it starts with, for example, in the morning, you know, getting the sunlight, going outdoors. And if it's just 10 minutes, it's just 10 minutes. If you can be half an hour, great. But getting some time, um, spending some time outdoors, um, you know, then throughout the day, again, <laughs> It's about seeking some light. If you can get a desk by the window, great. Um, again, if you can go out for lunch, fantastic. Um, then looking also at sort of um, exercise levels, yeah, making sure that you don't just sit all day, but there, there's some sort of exercise. And even if it's sort of just standing up, working at a standing desk, um, if you can incorporate a gym or, or run, that's fantastic. Caffeine. Uh, like I said, it's absolutely fine to consume, you know, a couple of cups of coffee, depending how um, sensitive you are, of course, but then cutting it out by sort of the mid-afternoon. And for for alcohol, um, little is better. And also the earlier you consume it is, is better. And I wouldn't say, you know, drink every day. I would say, you know, sort of pick pick your moments because alcohol can affect sleep and it doesn't need to be much that we drink in order for it to have an impact on our sleep quality. Um, and then there's also food. Um, 
and everyone talks about healthy diet and you know that's certainly important but there's also more and more research showing that it is when we eat that is impacting on our health and our well-being and therefore also on our sleep and um, there's some exciting research um, by Professor Sachin Panda I hope I said the name correctly um, from the States uh, who's also published a book and he's showing that it's um, better to sort of restrict your your um, eating window to something like maybe 10 hours, if you can do eight, I think is even better, um, but something like yeah, 12 or, or 10 hours and have, you know, your last meal earlier on in the evening um, or late, late afternoon rather than later in the evening. Yeah, what happens, I mean, when it is too close to bed to eat a meal and, you know, I would think small goes down a lot better than large, so you don't have reflux and, you know, throw up in your sleep or try to digest in your sleep. But what's there, any specific recommendations you have there? Um, so how much time to leave between your dinner and going to bed? Hello? Sorry, I lost you for a second. Yeah, time, uh, sorry, we'll fix that. Yeah, how much time before you sleep uh, should you leave and stop eating and uh, size of the meal, anything to eat or not eat, you know, those two things. Okay, right. So, yeah, yeah. So um, I would say leave, you know, something like three hours. But again, there, there will be more research where we can sort of refine the recommendations here. Um, but yeah, I would sort of go for the sort of leave three hours. And then a lighter meal is is certainly better because the the body and the stomach, you know, they are slowly shutting down towards the end of the day because from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we wouldn't sort of have things to eat after the sun set. There were no refrigerators, nothing like that when humans first evolved. So everything is is shutting down there. Um, so eating your main meal earlier in, in the day, maybe around lunchtime, um, is potentially better than having that main meal late in the evening. So I would go for for lighter things, certainly, you know, that you're not hungry, you know, don't want you to starve because if, you, if you're hungry in the middle of the night, you know, that can then again disturb your sleep. So do make sure, you know, that you get the sense of, of fullness, but it's about choosing things that might be um, that not so heavy. Um, and also it might be helpful to eat sort of something with uh, slow releasing carbohydrates where, you know, you slowly and have this slow, steady um, energy supply across the evening and into the night. Um, what happens if you get hungry before bed? You know, let's say it's been almost three hours and you're ready to go to bed and you think, oh, no, I forgot now I'm hungry. You know, what could you do? Yeah. What's the strategy? Um, so what I've heard Dr. Uh, Sachin talk about is um, that, you know, when you first start to sort of restrict and shorten your, your eating window, that can be sort of a bit of, you know, adjustment period and sort of that, hunger pang that can come i think what what one can eat then is maybe something like a like a cracker um um or something like maybe um with with protein yeah or a bit of sort of muesli that type of stuff that sort of but like i said it sort of gives you gives you some energy but it's then sort of slow release what are, what are some of the um i guess the main complaints people have that come to see you is it just that you know they have insomnia or is it that uh their sleep is disturbed in some other way. I mean, you know, if you were to silo the different things that people complain to you about, you know, what are some of the major ones? 
So predominantly, it's it's insomnia, really. You know, that's sort of the the service that I that I provide. Um, and there, I can see people, you know, who've had insomnia maybe four months or for, or three months. Um, and I also see people, you know, who've had insomnia for thirty years. So you know, there's a huge sort of span. But predominantly, it's people who have had insomnia for longer than a year um, who come and see me. And you know, their their life is um, sometimes severely impacted upon by by their lack lack of sleep and you know how they go about their day and then I sometimes also see people with um, delayed sleep phase syndrome um, so that is we were talking about larks and owls so these are extreme owls who want to go to bed really really late at night you know more like sort of three four um, five o'clock in the morning um, and then you know sort of still want to sleep, like I said, they're, they're eight hours. And that is obviously, you know, a severe clash with how society works. And so sometimes, yeah, I see people with, with that as well, sometimes teenager, teenagers with delayed sleep phase syndrome. Well, do you run into people with delayed sleep phase syndrome that sleep eight hours and they're fine? They're somehow able to do it? Um, if they're able to do it, if, you know, if they maybe run their own business where, you know, where they can structure their day, um, very often they're fine, but a majority of people can't. They have to confirm to society. And and that's when then, you know, we see um, problems in, in health, but also in mood, which is predominantly down to a lack of sleep. Are there any new techniques or new uh, studies that you're waiting, you know, you're waiting to see the results of that you think will be breakthroughs for sleep? Um, I think uh, the ones around the eating window that will be um, that will be uh, helpful um, because it it helps keeping our internal clock aligned, better aligned um, with with sort of everything else that happens in our world. Um, you know, we we're learning more and more that the gut, the microbiome, um, is immensely important for our health and well-being, but also for our mood, and that there is probably um, some sort of um, uh, relationship between the microbiome also impacting on the clock, on circadian rhythms, and, and vice versa. So anything around that, I think, will be will be very helpful. Um, also, then with a look at sort of chronic diseases, diseases, cardiovascular diseases, but also cancer, um, to to support people there, as well as actually in in, in mood disorders, um, depression, for example, kind of helping people or providing people with better treatments. Okay, interesting. Uh, do you deal much with uh, sleep apnea, snoring, that kind of thing, or is that uh, when when you observe that, you pass them on to a different practitioner? Yeah, exactly. Then, then I would pass them on because you know I I don't have a sort of a clinic in that sense for sleep apnea. You need um, monitoring to sort of diagnose that. And so, yeah, if there is someone where they where it could be sleep apnea or sleep apnea could be part of you know the 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 insomnia, um, then I will pass them back on or sort of refer them back to to the GP uh, to then go to a sleep clinic where they can do an overnight study can be properly assessed and then get get the the right treatment often that sort of CPAP that's the oxygen mask um you know or sort of a mouth guard for some of them but yeah they I will then pass them back on sort of to the GP all right well very good so what's the best way people can get in touch and ask more questions and you know if they're local to you uh, come see you for help the best way to get in touch is uh, just send me an email um, 
via via the website or my, my email address is on the website um and then i will will respond you know as as soon as um but yeah that's that's the best way to find me okay well, very good well katharina thank you for coming on the podcast i appreciate it thank you for for the opportunity it, it's a pleasure always happy to you know talk about sleep and circadian rhythms You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.